Now, if you have your Bibles with you, um, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be covering from verse 12 to 18. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 18. And if you could all stand as a sign of worship and reverence to, of God's word. Philippians 2 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated, friends. Let me pray for us, for God's blessing on his word. Father, we want your blessing to show us Christ, to, for Christ to be our motivation, for your glory to be our motivation of when we go out to live with integrity, to live with love, to live with wisdom. And Lord, we know that motivation can only come from your word. The proper motivation can only come from your spirit. So that's what I pray for this church, God that in our witness, we may carry you and you may be the fuel for why we proclaim and why we live. May you be glorified in the preaching of your word, but also may you be glorified in the meditation of your word and the hearing of your word. And this worship may it bring true rest because your spirit brings us fellowship. In your honor and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was once an uh, Amish family, a couple and their young daughter, who had never visited the city. So one weekend, they decided to take a stroll down in the outlet section of downtown, major metropolitan area. And when they're walking along the streets, the husband, he stumbled upon a, a hardware store, a Home Depot-like store and was so captivated by the, by the size of this store, by the selection of the tools and everything in it, that he told his wife and his daughter to just go on ahead and uh, he'll catch up. So the mother and the daughter continue walking down the street until the sight of a, of a tinted revolving door stopped them under tracks. Because you see, they had never seen a revolving door before. Um, and so they looked up at the, at, above it to see the sign of the store. And it read this, Adidas, impossible is nothing. Immediately, they saw a man roughly in his 50s with a bald head, spot on his head with a beer belly, and who did not look very athletic at all. And as, as he entered through one side of the revolving doors, and out the other immediately came out a young, tall, muscular, full of hair young man. The daughter says, exclaims to her mother, it is true. Nothing is impossible. To which the mother replies, honey, go get your husband. Go get your father. Go get your father. <laughs> Sorry. 
But sometimes we wish, maybe, that maturity and change and growth in ourselves or in people, maybe in our kids, could be quicker and could be magical, don't we? But change and maturity and growth take time. And they certainly take effort on behalf of the person and also on behalf of the people in your life. Likewise, when it comes to Christian maturity, um, a Christian life and our faith and our growth, maturity is not magical, it's not instantaneous, but rather it takes time and it takes conscious effort and planning and goal and setting goals and a lot of help from outside. In our passage this morning, Paul wants to address how followers of Christ grow, how followers of Christ change and mature. Whether you've been a Christian for five years, three years, two weeks, or 20 years, Paul is addressing to us all. And and specifically, he's addressing this gradual transformation of the believer into becoming more like Jesus. So here's the gospel promise our passage offers to our hearts to believe. And it's this. It is God's great pleasure to work in you. So work out your salvation with joy and delight. Brothers and sisters, it is God's great pleasure to work in you. So work out your salvation with joy and delight. I want to look at three things that Paul tells us that when we are united to Jesus, he tells us that we are gradually transformed to be three things. He says we're transformed to be like workers, lights, and a city. Workers, lights, and a city. So first, workers. Our passage begins um, with a, in verse 12, with a therefore. <clears throat> so the first thing we need to figure out is, what is that therefore? Therefore. And just to give you a quick recap, Paul spends the first half of chapter 2 explaining how Jesus is the perfect example of humility for us. See, the God of the universe takes human flesh. He humbles himself to experience what it's like to be human, what it's like to sweat and be stuck in a closed enclosed room, preaching to a crowd and sweating and smelly and hot, right? And willingly chooses to suffer the wrath of God. He dies in the place of sinners. And Paul tells us in verse 9 that because of his obedience— to his father, his perfect obedience, Jesus' story did not end in crucifixion and humiliation, but rather in resurrection and exaltation. And because this is true, Paul in verse 12 reminds us that believers, Christian, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him, you have been united to him and whatever is true of Christ is also true of you. And because of that, That is the foundation of grace and promise that Paul moves on to encourage the Philippian church to therefore obey in living Christ-centered lives, whether they have Paul's presence with them or not. Because the church of Christ has a greater motivation than Paul. Even though Paul was a celebrity apostle, they have a greater motivation than his teachings and his instructions. They have the riches of Christ. And likewise, Cornerstone Church, brothers and sisters, your motivation to grow in your spiritual walk, I hope is not just because you think Pastor Andrew will come after you or your elders will come after you, but because you have the love of Jesus that is far richer, that is far deeper, and that is more than enough. 
Paul commands the Philippian church to not neglect their obedience in pursuing holiness in Christ's likeness. But we must pause here and read carefully and ask the very question, which is this. Who is it that works out our salvation? Who is it that makes us more like Christ? Because it seems like in verse 12, it's the believers themselves. And in verse 13, Paul is saying that it is God who works for our holiness. So which one is it? And the answer, of course, as with many Christian answers, sometimes is both. But let me explain. Working out your salvation refers to the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And in verse 12, we find this doctrine that is often referred to as progressive sanctification. And the idea is that when a person places their trust in Jesus to give them a new identity, a new purpose in salvation, the wrath of God turns and that person is immediately declared righteous before God. But things don't stop there. They're also ju they're justified and they're also sanctified as God's people. In other words, God sets them apart from the world and bestows upon them a new identity. We call this definitive sanctification. You're different. You've been set apart. You're a new creation now. But progressive sanctification is the process of being made more like Christ after having been declared righteous and distinct from the world. Progressive sanctification is sort of like a daily thing. You know, I came to the States in 2002. I didn't become a citizen until 2008. But I came from Argentina with a, raised in a Korean household. So when I came to the States, I had no clue what it was to be American. Like, why do we celebrate 4th of July? Why do we eat hot dogs and burgers? Like, what happened? Were they created in 4th of July? Like, what was the th what's the deal here? Right? However, when I became a citizen, the country declares me as part of American citizen. That's been done. It's done. I am not no longer a Korean citizen or officially from another country. I am an American citizen, but I had to learn the customs and, and, and become accustomed to things and maybe smell like one and eat hot dogs and burgers a little more. But that's the idea. So here is Paul's logic in verse 12. He tells the Philippians to work out their salvation, not work for their salvation. He tells them to work out their salvation, not work in your salvation. To work for your salvation would be to earn God's favor. To work in your salvation would be individualistic. It's me and Jesus and for nobody else. I'm just going to enjoy the benefits of what God did for me for myself. To work out your salvation and to work in your salvation so, sorry, to work for your salvation, to work in your salvation are no longer needed because Jesus gives you the salvation and he gives you a people to share that with. And the very reason you can work out your salvation is because verse 13 tells us God is working for your holiness. In other words, it's not 50% God and 50% you. It's not 99.9% .9 God and 0.1% you but rather God works 100% of your sanctification and you confirm that 100% in your work. See, God works and you work to confirm that work. The moment you place your faith in Christ, God works in you and you're transformed as a worker yourself. 
Paul mentions that we are to work out or confirm the grace we have received with fear and trembling. But this is not a fear and trembling to earn anything, but rather it's a fear and trembling because we've received something of great magnitude and of great price. 10 months ago, if you're a parent, you can probably relate to this. But 10 months ago, Jen and I received our first child into the world. And I, we remember how, walking into the hospital. We felt, you know, we were a little nervous and we didn't know what to expect. But we felt pretty confident because we watched, the, watched these video, videos months before called uh, Taking Care of Babies. The lady's name was Kara. So she was putting a spin on it, Taking Care of Babies. So we watched those videos. <laughs> Those videos every every night we did the exercises we talked about it we we did um, bridge exercises you know I I um, did it with Jan as well and it had many benefits but we felt confident so we took we we were walking into the hospital we took selfies and we were smiling and we we felt everything was going to be good and everything changed <laughs> a few moments later when we received our first child this great gift this precious gift and all of a sudden. We were afraid. <laughs> the people you see on those selfies were not who we were anymore. But why? Were we afraid because we were, if we were not feeling confident, we would not receive this gift? No, we were afraid because we received this thing. We received this baby of great value. We walked out of the hospital, fear and trembling. And we worked out our now newly identity as parents with fear and trembling because we receive something so precious, the weight of it. Verse 13 is not an excuse for passivity, but is meant to be an encouragement for believers in their certainty in their activity. Christians don't retire in their work for holiness after they've trusted in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 20, 15, or 50 years. Or it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for one week. You never retire. Verse 13 is a promise that God will bless your efforts in seeking to be more like Christ because he will make sure that you are. When Buddha was 80 years old, he knew he was on the brink of death and he surrounded himself with his most loyal followers and he gave them one last source of teaching. And he said to them this, quote, And now, O priests, which was his followers, work out your own salvation diligently because each one of you is just what I am. John Noss, who's a professor of philosophy at Franklin Marshall College, reflecting on Buddha's last words in his book, Man's Religion, he comments that Buddha asked each of his students to reach nirvana, salvation, perfection by themselves because neither he nor anyone was able to walk alongside with them to do it for them. See, salvation was a lonely journey. Perfection was a lonely road on your own power and your own responsibility. And if you messed up, every mistake will count towards your next incarnation. You're on your own. And, but the gospel tells us a different story. See, Paul tells us that we have great reason to work towards Christ-likeness and the motivation is that our work is guaranteed by God who works in us. So here's a question for us to consider, brothers and sisters. Are you actively working to confirm Christ's gift of grace in your life by seeking to be more like Jesus? Or have you been passive in your, in your faith without consciously thinking of ways that you would want to be more like Christ. 
I mean, do you work out your salvation with as much passion as you may work out your political party, your professional careers, your interests, your financial pursuits? In discipleship, have you been actively engaging in discipling people in your life? Or do you find yourself excusing that job to, uh, for other people who you feel are more equipped or they have more downtime? In your marriages, are you actively asking your spouse ways you need to repent and change? Or you have your conversations been avoiding ways to sanctify each other and settle for just logistical survival? You know, COVID is regulations are loosening much more and people are expecting them to over the few months. But people are still gracious in giving you, uh, giving each other space if you say you're not comfortable going large places or reaching out to people because of COVID. And there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that area. But it's still easy to stay home, right? And not reach out to anybody. But have you found a temptation to seclude yourself and not want to reach out and love and see creative ways to love other people outside of your world as opposed to engaging and thinking and, and talking. Do you work out your body more often than you work out your faith? And if you're wondering, well, you just told me that it's 100% God. So what's the harm in being passive if God is going to take care of my sanctification for me? Here's the danger. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, chapter 13, verse 5, he issues a warning that not everyone who professes to be a Christian is a Christian. And he's writing this letter to Christians. And he says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? This great gift. Unless, of course, you fail the test. See, genuine faith, according to Paul, examines itself repeatedly to make sure we're working to confirm the gospel our hearts received and they believed. I mean, consider this. In John 5, 8, John records the story of a man who was paralyzed and relied on the grace of, the graciousness of people to get him closer and closer to the public pool. But when Jesus meets this man, Jesus gives him the gift of healing and then he just doesn't say, well, let me pick you up and drag you a little bit because you haven't walked in a while. You need physical therapy here. He doesn't say that. He says, pick up your mat and walk. Essentially, confirm today the gift you've received that you could not achieve on your own. Confirm it today for yourself and for others to see. Work it out. You know, kind of like walk it out. Literally. There's a story uh, that one evening Satan gathered his chief of staff to come up with strategies in order to undermine the gospel. And one demon uh, suggested that, the, that they would disperse a lie that there is no life after death. Then nobody will believe in God if there's no life after death. Um, that won't work, said another demon. God created people in his, uh, with this innate desire for eternal life. And even atheists have this lingering feeling for, of life after death. I got it, said another one. Let's say there is no God or that if he ever existed, he's just dead now. He's gone. But Satan replied, that won't work either. Because mankind knows that there is a God even if they don't seek him. Aha, responded the third demon. 
I have the solution. Let's tell people that there is a God and that the Bible is true and it is God's word. Everyone in the, group, in the room gasped. But he continued. Then we will tell them that Jesus is the son of God and he frees men from their sins to live in holiness. And the room shrieked. And some began wondering if this was a traitor in, among their midst. But then he continued. Let me finish. Then we'll tell them that today is just not the best time to pursue holiness. You're busy. You have life going on. Tell them there's no hurry. Tell them to make excuses that they can be holy without effort. And then tomorrow, tell them the exact same thing. And the room cheered and each realized they had hit a great plan. Church, for some of you, working out your salvation means to pick up your Bible and read it. That's a big step. For others of you, it could mean that today is a day when you close your doors and you spend time in prayer in repentance and fellowship with the Holy Spirit and ask Jesus for intimacy. But let me suggest this very practical and what I think is terrifying step. For some of you, working out your salvation begins by approaching a trusted mentor, a ministry leader, or a pastor of your church, your spouse, or a good friend, and asking them in what ways do they think that you need to grow to be more like Christ. And if that is you, I'm confident that from knowing Andrew and your staff here at Cornerstone, that they would love to talk to you, not to judge you, but to encourage you in the work that God wants to do in you, that he's already doing in you. So we're workers, not retirees, from the moment we trust in Christ until the day we see him face to face, because the greatest reward is being like Christ himself and no reason to settle. Paul continues in verse 14 to and he gives us an odd example of what it looks like to work out our salvation. He gives us one example here. And it is odd because after having explained this amazing reality that God works in us and that we are to work out our salvation, you would expect him to say something like, well, now work out your salvation by doing all things sacrificially, sweat, blood, and tears, preach at a retreat where the room is 120 degrees, right? Or do all the heaviest Christian duties, like give all your money away to the poor or leave your family and become a missionary. But instead, Paul says, here's how you work out your salvation. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Which leads us to our second point. Paul wants us to know that Christians are workers, but in Christ, you're also lights. What do I mean by this? In verse 14, Paul instructs Christians that to work out your salvation is to do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, these two sins are not random. And we know that because of what Paul says in verse 15. In verse 15, Paul wants his readers to remember the Israelites during their wanderings in the desert. And particularly, their greatest, most constant sin, more than worshiping the golden calf, although that was a pretty low point in this Israelite history, but their most constant, echoing, grumbling, uh, climax in sin was the daily, habitual, ever-increasing grumbling, discontentment, complaining against God and his work. And it was this grumbling and it was this disputing that even led Moses to declare in Deuteronomy 32, and he's talking to Israel, that Israel, you are a corrupt and not 
God's children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Now, when you think of crooked, warped, and crooked generation, what do you tend to think of? You tend to think of a, a nation, a group of people who are sacrificing to idols and they're stealing and lying and cheating, maybe st stealing stickers from like yogurt cans from, uh, from supermarkets. Oh, that's a lying and, and crooked generation. But Moses says, by your complaint, by your discontentment, you're a crooked and twisted generation. Now, what's the con connection between grumbling and discontentment and being a child of God? And it's this, grumbling and disputing at the very root declare that God is my servant, whereas gratitude and contentment declares that God is my heavenly providing father. In other words, Israel's purpose, even in the desert, was to be a light to the nations around them. That whatever their circumstances, they were pointing to the goodness of God and trust in his love. But in their grumblings, in their discontentments, they've made themselves the center of attention and abandoned their calling to be a light and to be different than the rest. When was the last time that you grumbled? When was the last time that you complained? When was the last time that you were, were discontent about something? I mean, this month, this week, this morning? Maybe you're grumbling that Restrictions are loosening up now and now you have to see people more often. Your office is calling you back to come in two to three times a week. You're like, oh. And often we believe that things were better during COVID. Even though before COVID, we cherish the days before COVID. And often we tend to believe that small grumbles are harmless and sinful. And it's just the way that we live and we complain. Everybody complains. Everybody has something that they're not happy with in this life. And that's natural. It's a way to relate to one another. It's a way to build fellowship camaraderie around the water cooler, right? But C.S. Lewis, when describing what hell is like, and for him, hell is the final place of and form of separation from all the goodness of God. He described it like this. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Notice he didn't say murderous mood or a lustful mood. He says, grumbling mood. Always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and think you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer do so. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. See, Paul warns us that the smallest ounce of grumbling points to a heart that demands that people, systems, traffic, children, jobs, bosses, leadership, politicians, the weather, prices on goods, our pay, our salary, and ultimately that God should all work to serve and accommodate us. See, we don't like it when the weather is too hot or too cold. We complain when our coworkers are doing a good job because it makes us look bad. Or we complain when they're doing a poor job because now we have more work to do. We complain when churches are too active or too passive. In fact, these days it's quite easy to complain or see people grumbling and in discontentment. Just log on to your favorite social media. And eventually you'll see someone complaining about something in the world. Now on a side note, Grumbling is not the same thing as lamenting. And the difference is that grumbling and complaining looks to assign blame to someone or something for your misery, while lamenting over something that's broken looks to affirm contentment and God's goodness 
and his sovereignty in the midst of suffering and evil. So what Paul is saying to the Philippian church is this, remember that you're children of God. You have a father who is in control. You have a God who works all things for your good. And remember that God will not allow anything to happen in your life that won't shape you to be more and more like Christ. And if your hearts believe this, this promise, Paul reminds the Philippians that there will be a light and a witness that God is good, that we are an unshakable, that we have an unshakable hope regardless of circumstances in this world, regardless of who gets elected into office, regardless of whether you're rich or poor, whether you are a church of 5,000 or 100 or 30, regardless of whether you're healthy or sick, whether you are married or single or divorced or widow or widower, regardless whether your kids are walking in the Lord or after you've done everything you could, they drifted away, whether you're struggling with infertility or forms of injustice, whether COVID-19 disappears by July or stays until December 2025. See, the gospel that we have received reminds us that in all things are for our good. So we are content and we become lights in the midst of a dark and grumbling world. Okay, but maybe you're sitting here and you're reflecting on your personal uh, Christian life and your faith and you're reflecting on you as a church and maybe the good old days before COVID as you were starting your church and you were blessing the community and you had all these ministries going on. You're thinking, we're killing it. We're doing it. God is on our side. He's building our church. And then COVID-19 comes and everything gets shut down. And maybe you're thinking, I don't, that you don't certainly feel like lights, but maybe you feel more like a candlestick in the, the middle of a storm trying to shield the wind, right? Back and forth, but it's all over. So you can't, and you're barely hanging on. Maybe you feel like your best efforts to live a faithful, genuine Christian life has had more reboots than Batman and Godzilla movies combined. I mean, what's the guarantee? What's the guarantee that God won't abandon you and look at you and your lost cause? You're just too broken. What's the guarantee that your work to strive in your personal holiness as in a, in a corporate holiness to live for Jesus will bear fruit. Which leads us to our third and last point. This is your guarantee. Jesus sacrificed his life for a city and you, Cornerstone, are that city. Jesus in Matthew 5.14, he tells his followers that they are the light of the world. So Paul's saying, referencing light of the world in Philippians 2 is not new language. But the interesting thing that Jesus mentions in 5.14 is that these are not just individual lights dispersed through social distancing. I mean, we tend to think of that children's song, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Wherever I go, I'm going to let it shine. As if, And we tend to think that our individual lights are all that matters. And we take pride in our individual lights sometimes, or we, maybe we feel discouraged in our individual lights. Because we carry incandescent lights or fluorescent lights and we have, somebody has LED lights and we judge others for having, you know, halogen lights. How dare you? But, but to clear all misunderstanding, Jesus in Matthew 5.14 goes on to explain what kind of light this is. And it, he says that it's the same light that shines with brightness as a what? As a city on a hill. 
A city with lights is a city with life. See, a city with lights is a city that's bright and it's bright because of its proximity of one light to each other. See, personal sanctification is nourished through community. It's strengthened through community. When astronauts are in space, they can see cities and nations because individual lights work together. And this is so crucial for us to remember that Christ died for individual citizens, but he did so to build his bright city. The gospel tells us that the city boundaries have been bought by the cross of Jesus. The land has been purchased by the blood of the lamb and the citizens have been gathered by the grace of the king. And now the city is under construction day by day by Jesus, the great architect, the perfecter of our faith. So whether you are an individual or you are a congregation, your faith has an architect under contract. Now, where do we find this in our passage? Look with me in verse 17. Paul says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. The mood of this verse in verse 17 is certainty. That certainty for Paul that the Philippians will become the bright city of Christ, not because Paul poured into them, nor because the Philippian church's works were perfect, but because a greater sacrificial offering has been poured into the lives of every Christian believer. See, the sacrificial offering in the Old Testament, it maintained the relationship between man and God. The sacrificial offering opened the door for God to accept the prayers of a broken, in-progress people. It was the only way that God could maintain a daily relationship with sinful people. So without a proper sacrificial offering, pleasing God is impossible. Paul in Hebrews uh, 10, 14 he says this, for by a single offering, Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you and me. Notice that the verb here in, in Hebrews 10 is, 14 is, we are being sanctified. Meaning that God has made a permanent contract to keep his relationship with you regardless of the sins you commit, regardless of the progress you think you've made or how many steps you feel like you've taken back, the brokenness you experience perhaps day in and day out. His relationship with you still stands even when your best efforts fall short. Because Christ offered his perfect life as a sacrifice to bind himself to you and to the church throughout eternity. And in every season of our sanctification, whether you feel like you've taken 10 steps back or whether COVID, you feel like COVID sort of sh shut you down, Christ will not forsake you. He will not forsake his city. Let me end with this illustration, the story. If you ever get to visit the city of Barcelona in Spain and you do a quick Google search for places to go and see, you will become very familiar with a man named Antoni Gaudi. Gaudi was a brilliant architect and what made him famous was that he paid extreme attention to detail in each of his buildings. A door handle was not just a door handle for Gaudi, but rather he would study for weeks and months on the natural tendency of the human hand to wrap around door handles. And then he would later go on and study nature and leaves and branches and animals and try to assimilate the perfect blend of comfort and beauty in all of his designs. 
I mean, everything Gaudi made from his door handles to the windows to the stairs and the walls and the color of the floor, the shape of the tiles were all organic, purposeful, and beautiful. And because of his many projects throughout the city of Barcelona, it's easy to see why Barcelona is often referred to as Gaudi's city or Gaudi's canvas. In but in 1883, at the age of 31, Gaudi took on a contract to work on his greatest project yet. And it was called La Sagrada Familia. His assignment was to build a church whom his predecessor had abandoned because it had, it, they requested it to, make, to reflect God's glory on earth. You know, no pressure. At once, Gaudi got to work. And he even raised the bar so that every nook and cranny of this church would at least contain one symbolic element of the gospel story narrative so as to make this the perfect God-honoring structure of all history on earth. Gaudi worked day and night. He never married. He lost many friends. There are stories of how Gaudi would even not even go home to sleep, but he would bring a mattress and put it in the middle of the church amidst all the construction equipment. And instead he would dream about what this church will one day be. Sadly, after 42 years of laboring, Gaudi died at the age of 73. He left behind a monster project that was unfinished. And later on, parts of it were actually destroyed because a Spanish civil war happened and, and the building was just destroyed and parts of it were torn down. And later on, the building's goal was so complex that more than 10 architects quit and refused to finish the church. To this day, though much progress has been made, if you go, you'll see half of the church built, but if you go around, you're going to see tape and uh, construction gear there. The church is still incomplete. There's a new lead architect who is promising to finish the church by 2026, but history shows that no one can be sure. Friends, sometimes the church can feel like that. Sometimes your spiritual lives can feel like that. Maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years, and you feel like there's still a long way to go. Is God still going to work in my life? Sometimes as a church, you feel like that. There's so many things you want to do, but you just don't seem to have the resources and the time to get there. But friends, the gospel tells us this amazing story that when God made this world, the great architect, his desire was to make a holy city. And man, but when man rejected God as the architect, they tried to make the city themselves. And generation after generation, the dreams of this city would break with each passing day as one architect would rise, but they would fall short. And eventually only a fool would take on this impossible task until scripture tells us that Jesus came to take broken, selfish, sinful, rebellious, imperfect, backtracking, resourceless people, you and me, every church in this world, and transform them into a city of priests. See, where every nook and cranny of our hearts will be holy and radiating God's glory. And this is the best part of the news. 
this contract with us as Christ pours his life. This, he makes a contract with us and is one that will never expire. And as Paul reminds us in Philippians, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the, at the day of Jesus Christ. What this means, church, what is the guarantee that Jesus will never forsake you? What is the guarantee that as you look into your life and as you look into your church and you wish there's so much work to do and you say, who is going to take on the, my spiritual walk? Who's going to take on my, the church, the, the health of our church life? What is the guarantee of that? The guarantee, what is the guarantee that your church and your spiritual life will not be under construction forever? The guarantee is this. You have a perfect eternal architect who never dies and who never grows tired and he's laboring with love so that mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war the church waits the consummation of peace forevermore church brothers and sisters look upon your architect be the city of our god on earth look upon your architect the one who poured out himself out as a peace offering and strive for holiness with one another today. Look upon your architect and work out the precious gift of salvation you received from him, from Jesus Christ. Look upon your architect, serve him with joy and delight. Let's pray.